That's the beginning of the last work Bella Bartok managed to complete, his third piano concerto. The score was more or less fully written out when he was rushed to hospital in his newly adopted city of New York. He died there a few days later of leukaemia. This was towards the end of September 1945. Bartok had lived just long enough to see his home country, Hungary, liberated from German occupation, which is some consolation. Though he was still full of plans. There was talk of his writing symphonies, a form he hadn't tackled since his student days, and apparently he already had ideas for a seventh string quartet. When the third piano concerto had its first performance in Philadelphia the following year, I wonder what the audience were expecting. If, that is, they had any particular expectations. Although Bartok had been living in the United States for five years, he hadn't made much of a name for himself, either as a composer or as a concert pianist, or much of a living either. There would have been some in that Philadelphia audience for whom Bartok was more than just a name, but the chances are they would have been preparing themselves for something aggressively modern. Amongst the musical cognoscenti, Bartok was still infamous as the composer who used weird scales and quarter tones, who told string players to pluck their strings so violently that they snapped against the fingerboard, and who treated that noble romantic instrument, the grand piano, as a percussion instrument. But this piece, well, there were times when it even began to sound like Brahms. <laughs> was Bartok doing in this new concerto? Perhaps he'd decided, however reluctantly, that if he was going to make any kind of living in America, he was going to have to adopt a more populist approach. There may have been a more urgent, practical reason for this apparent simplification of his style. Bartok was worried about what his wife would do for money when he died. She was a fine pianist, so why not write a concerto for her that might just prove popular enough to guarantee her a small income? Perhaps there were other factors that might have influenced the style and character of the new concerto. Bartok does often seem to be the kind of artist whose creativity exists in a sphere of its own, untouched by personal crises or world events. There are times, though, when something external left a clear imprint on the music he was working on at the time. The first violin concerto bears the marks of a failed youthful love affair. Much later, the catastrophe in Europe in the late 1930s scarred the emotional tissue of the Sixth Quartet. It's just possible that exterior forces influenced the way the Third Piano Concerto turned out, but more of that later. Let's suppose for a moment that Bartok is trying to reach out to his audience in a new, more accessible way. At the same time, he doesn't want to compromise himself completely to turn his back on all those extraordinary discoveries he's made in his earlier modernist works. The very first sound could be described as neutral. Quiet, rustling violin and viola figures seem to spell out the key of E. No ambiguity or abrasive dissonances. T. 
timpani softly underlined that sense of E as a home key with one of the simplest and longest established formulae in classical music, a cadence, dominant tonic. Let's just take the top line of the rustling string figures. There are two notes there, a descending major second, B-A. The modernist Bartok might well have continued by introducing something discordant against those notes. But here the piano begins with the same falling second, B-A, and then takes it up a step. This all seems pretty straightforward. But in fact, there's just one element missing that would make this a conventional tonal beginning. We've had five notes of the scale of E. E itself, followed by F-sharp, A, B and C-sharp. That is, in textbook terms, a pentatonic scale. It's a version of the scale you arrive at if you play just the black notes on the piano. Composers had used this scale long before Bartok had in this concerto, and it's a staple element in some kinds of traditional folk music. But Bartok's arranged it so that, although we feel that we're in the key of E, the scale doesn't contain the crucial third, the interval that would tell us whether this is E major or E minor. Bartok had made much more startling uses of different scales in his more modernist works. Here's a striking example from a piece he'd written six years earlier, the Sixth String Quartet. It's unlikely that Bartok's audience in 1945 would have found what he does at the beginning of the third piano concerto quite as unsettling as that, but it would still have been a little unusual. Bartok does soon provide the missing third, G-sharp, to make this a clear E major, but he introduces it in a slightly unusual way. As the piano melody falls from its first four notes, it tosses in the G-sharp, almost in passing, as though it were of little account. So the piano line spells out E major, but not so that it completely obscures the neutrality of that pentatonic background. Bartok is introducing modernist elements here, but by stealth. He presents a smiling, comfortingly familiar tonal face at the opening of this concerto, but the E major isn't quite as secure as it might be. It isn't long before our sense of stability is undermined even further. 
To give you a clearer idea of what I mean, here are the piano's next two short phrases as Bartok almost wrote them, as he probably would have written them if he'd wanted the piano to stay in that clear E major. Now here's what Bartok actually wrote. In terms of the familiar E major scale, there are some intriguing wrong notes there. The first is quite mild. It's a D natural instead of a D sharp. Then there's a rather more flavoursome twist when the piano plays G natural and then quickly seems to correct it to G sharp. Try and keep the last two notes of that phrase at the back of your mind, the shape and the rhythm. That's going to be an important little detail later on. Now here's the whole of this long opening melody. Listen for the way Bartok goes on, introducing surprising little wrong note twists and turns into the piano's phrases. It's just enough to stop the music being reassuringly predictable, to make it ever so slightly unsafe, especially when the melody returns on the orchestra. these slightly disorienting little melodic or harmonic inflections, there's a lot about the way this music develops which is very much in keeping with the spirit of the classical romantic style, though Bartok's thinking is, as so often in his music, very subtle. He doesn't underline his thought processes. Sometimes he relies on our ability to pick up details or implications subliminally or intuitively. Here's an example of something which might pass unnoticed in the orchestral accompaniment to the piano's first big melodic paragraph. That rustling violin and viola accompaniment carries on its regular undulating pattern until at the climax of the piano melody it suddenly breaks off. Let's home in on what the violins do at the end there. It would be unlike Bartok to let something like that go for nothing. When the orchestra has finished its version of the opening melody, the piano seizes on that tiny, seemingly insignificant detail and turns it into something much bolder and more memorable.
If this were a conventional classical sonata form first movement, we ought to be expecting a second theme to emerge soon. And that's what happens. That previous passage seemed to be preparing for something more muscular. Instead, the new theme is marked grazioso, graceful. There's a gentle humour at work here. You can hear it in the way the piano's first phrase is transformed into something light as blown thistledown by the woodwind. Do you remember that tiny two-note figure I asked you to keep in mind from the opening melody? That now becomes the starting point for another new theme. This time, the marking is scherzando, jokily or playfully. Then the atmosphere changes yet again, with another new theme, in the woodwind this time, and that passage of Brahmsian breadth we heard earlier. This time, though, Bartok does something ingenious. This isn't really a new theme. Here's the opening turn again. That may not sound much like anything we've heard so far, but if you invert it, turn it upside down, it sounds like this. Just like the piano's very first phrase. It's another of those points where Bartok seems to be relying on our intuition. I'm sure he wasn't expecting the first audience to notice that consciously, but he makes things a little clearer straight away, as the phrase continues. Here's what happens next in the opening theme. And here's the new version. And even clearer still, this is how the first theme continues. And in the Brahmsian version...
It seems so obvious now, but in the context of the piece it's easy to miss. Bartok first transports us to a new environment, those rolling piano arpeggios and a new key, and then he disguises the opening of the melody by turning it upside down. Only then, when we're convinced that what we're hearing is new, does he make the tune more recognisable. We're momentarily confused. It's a bit like bumping into someone you know, but where you'd least expect to meet them. For a second, you don't quite believe your eyes. Later, we catch more than just a fleeting hint of Bartok, the acerbic modernist, the composer whose humour could be bitter as well as playful. It's just before the opening melody returns. High trills and plucked chords on strings descend chromatically, nervously, off the beat, and emphasised with sharp-edged accents. <laughs> Then Bartok has the violins play a trill that speeds up from two slowly oscillating notes. And then, almost as though nothing had happened, the movement's opening theme returns for the beginning of a reassuringly straightforward recapitulation. And yet it isn't quite reassuring. Hear that short passage in context and you might begin to wonder if Bartok, the abrasive radical, isn't getting a bit impatient in the face of all this modernism by stealth policy. Perhaps this is his way of registering a protest, a short, sharp punch, before the kid gloves are put back on. I describe the recapitulation that follows as reassuring, and on the whole it is, until the very end at least. As the movement winds down quietly, the tiny two-note motive returns, overlapping gently on piano, woodwinds and horns. But the mellifluous effect is slightly spoilt by string pizzicatos that creep upwards quietly in the background.
A flute takes a phrase from the opening melody and renders it in the purest E major. No wrong notes now, or at least not until the piano's last little comment. It's another version of the tiny two-note motif, but there's an unsettling F natural in there instead of the conventional F sharp. It leaves a slightly strange aftertaste. So much of the music in this first movement seems to wear a smile, and yet here, at the end, there's just enough unsettling discord to leave us with doubts about that smile. Now we've arrived at the central slow movement of Bartok's third piano concerto, and there's something right at the very beginning that may need explaining. It's the tempo marking, adagio religioso, slow with religious feeling. Religious? It's the only time in his entire output that Bartok asks for anything like that. As far as we know, he remained a convinced atheist throughout his adult life. But there's something else about the music which suggests that this religious marking ought to be taken very seriously. The slow movement divides into three main parts. Here's the beginning. There's something almost liturgical about this music. Quiet, overlapping string phrases alternate with a hymn-like theme on piano. You could compare it to the ritualized dialogue between a priest and a congregation. There's a sense of something spacious, even awe-inspiring here.
that's certainly very beautiful. But perhaps you're thinking that my liturgical comparison was a bit strained. Let's invoke something else. A direct comparison this time. Keep that dialogue between the piano's hymn phrases and the quietly flowing string counterpoint in mind and listen to this. That's the beginning of the slow movement of Beethoven's String Quartet in A minor, opus 132. The Bartok is so close to it that it sounds like an act of deliberate homage. Beethoven's slow movement carries a title, Heiliger Dankesang eines Genessenen an die Gottheit, Sacred Song of Thanks to the Deity from a Convalescent. Beethoven was recovering from a bout of serious illness when he wrote that music. Bartok was also seriously ill at the time he was writing the third piano concerto, but he'd found the piece he needed in order to compose at Saranac Lake, some way away from New York. Bartok hated city life. He felt cut off from nature. There's a story of him walking glumly along a New York street and suddenly looking up with a smile. Aha, he said, I smell a horse. His extraordinarily sensitive nostrils had picked up the scent from the nearby stables at Central Park. For a moment, the city was forgotten. So it could be that Bartok, like Beethoven, felt a sense of gratitude to the forces that had helped him work again. In Bartok's case, maybe not God, but nature, as revealed in the piece of Saranac Lake. There's something about the next section of the slow movement that makes that interpretation more likely. I remember reading that Bartok had said that the sights and sounds of the great Hungarian plain at night inspired in him something close to religious feelings. He loved the songs of night birds, the chirps, clicks and rustles of nocturnal insects. Those sounds find their way into several of Bartok's slow movements. It's a kind of musical evocation he called night music. So perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised to find them turning up in this religious adagio. Here, for instance, is a shimmering, dissonant violin tremolo, like the high-pitched drone of insect wings.
That's supported by another kind of drone, eerily scored for cello harmonics, plus, a fifth above, a muted trumpet. Oboe and clarinet have the cries of night birds. Put those sounds together, add a dash of birdsong imitation on the piano, and you have this strikingly atmospheric texture. As well as being the most richly atmospheric music in the whole of Bartok's Third Piano Concerto, it's also the closest this work comes to the modernist Bartok of the later string quartets. I don't think that's entirely coincidental. The Bartok who felt a quasi-religious awe before the sounds of the night in the open plains also found inspiration there for some of his most advanced musical thinking. Another source was the rhythms and scales found in the folk music of his native Hungary and in the Balkans, what he thought of as the natural music of the people. Modernism has been interpreted as an urban phenomenon, a response to the noise, pace, anxiety and loneliness of city life. For Bartok, it was absolutely the reverse. New York stifled him and deadened his imagination. Saranac Lake set his creativity free. But Bartok is keen to make sure we hear the fabulous modernist nature sounds as belonging to the rest of the concerto. Remember this little bird call-like motif we just heard on the piano. That was neatly anticipated in the tiny two-note figure that ended the first movement. Now it blossoms into flowing figures on the piano. Perhaps even the droning insect wings on violins. Are a relative of the rustling sounds with which the concerto began. After that night music, the hymn tune returns slowly on woodwinds, the piano adding two-part imitative figures, music which seems to hover between the world of Bach's two-part keyboard inventions and the night music sounds we've just heard.
At the end of the movement, the piano has one pained outburst. But listen to the way it calms as the quiet string figures are heard again. The piano echoes them for a moment, like someone lost in thought, before adding a simple two-chord amen cadence. Ironic or sincere, whatever, it's curiously satisfying. One thing that final Amen cadence does achieve unambiguously is a move from the key of the slow movement, C major, back to the E major of the first movement. And now, firmly rooted in that key, Bartok turns to the other source of his modernist inspiration, folk music. You can hear the pounding, accented rhythms of Hungarian dance music in this muscular first theme. And so begins an energetic fugue. Bartok treats the theme with his usual ingenuity. Here, for instance, it's upside down in the piano, then the right way up in unison in the strings, before the trumpet spells out its first falling interval and the imitative entries return. Further on in the finale, there's a strange example of Bartokian humour, again with a slightly bitter twist. 
After the fugue, as the music subsides again, another Bach-like figure is taken up in imitative counterpoint by the strings. Apart from that little chromatic turn at the end, it all sounds academically well-behaved, dry even, but the accompaniment on piano and cymbals is hardly respectful. Put those together and you have this strangely irreverent passage. two-in-a-bar version of the woodwind's dancing figure becomes the starting point for another fugue. This time, the piano seizes on the new fugue theme and plays it in a kind of mirror version, the right way up in the right hand, but upside down in the left, as though the theme's wryly confronting its own reflection. The strings take up the last little phrase and play it in mirror form as well, until it all comes together to form this fascinating, again slightly eerie sound. So this finale strikes out twice in the familiar form of fugue, only for the energy to be dissipated, even subverted with strange humour. Of course, Bartok's humour could be much darker, bitterer than this, though oddly enough, it often seems to happen in his finales, just when everything's going swimmingly. Here's a deeply unsettling example from near the end of the fifth quartet. <laughs> dear. No, there's nothing quite like that in the finale of the third piano concerto. All the same, 
Bartok shows the same tendency here to throw a spanner in his own works, sometimes through black humour, sometimes with a kind of momentary withdrawal into weird reveries, as in the finales of the music for strings, percussion and celeste, and the concerto for orchestra. But in all these cases, the energetic motion resumes even more determinedly. Yes, there's a time and a place for self-questioning, but ultimately the dance must go on.